Hello and welcome to episode 7 of Celluloid Junkies. I'm Luke Kane and I'm here with my intrepid co-host Damien Heath. Hello. And Cameron Crothers. Hello. This month we are taking it to the mat as we pay tribute to Darren Aronofsky's 2008 film The Wrestler. You know, the only place I get hurt is out there. I'm really here. Now, I just wanted to say to our listeners that you may have noticed we didn't release a December episode, and that's because French Connection was slated to be our December episode. We actually recorded it in December, but then my Mac shit itself, and there were delays, and Christmas happened, and as a result, it just didn't happen. We got it out in early January. And rather than punch out two rushed episodes in January, we thought, you know what, we'll skip a month and bring you a show that we could all be proud of. So I hope that you'll forgive us for that. Now, we've got an excellent show lined up for you this month. We uh, are going to be profiling The Wrestler, and we have two fantastic guests who are such a pleasure to interview and who are gracious enough to speak with us. They are professors and authors Taja Lane and Yadranka Skorankapov. By 2007, Robert Siegel had quit his job as chief editor of The Onion with dreams of writing a screenplay. After attempting a couple of broad comedies that didn't quite work... Siegel tried his hand at darker material. The result? A screenplay entitled Big Fan, about a football fanatic who gets assaulted by his favourite player, caught the attention of the studios and was being shopped around. Amongst those who took notice was a rising 36-year-old director in the process of raising money for his fifth movie. Brooklyn-born Darren Aronofsky had hit it big nine years ago after his first feature, the surreal, low-budget psychological thriller Pie, was selected by Sundance and bought by Artisan Entertainment for $1 million. His last film, a brooding metaphysical drama called The Fountain, had received mixed reviews and failed at the box office. For his next project, Aronofsky was looking for a writer he could collaborate with to tell the story of Randy the Ram Robinson, an ageing pro wrestler who struggles with isolation, obscurity and regret in the twilight of his career. After reading Big Fan, Aronofsky offered Siegel the job, and together they developed the screenplay while Aronofsky scrounged together the $6 million budget. Nicolas Cage was initially attached to play the lead, but dropped out a month later. Aronofsky claims that he told Cage it was because he wanted to cast his first choice, Mickey Rourke, but Cage denies this, telling Access Hollywood that he forfeited the part after realising he wouldn't have enough time to achieve the physique required for the role. Rourke had been a bankable leading man in the 80s, appearing in high-profile films like Diner and Nine and a Half Weeks, but retired from acting in 91 to become a professional boxer. He returned to the screen a few years later, appearing mostly in bit parts. Initially reluctant to accept the role of the Ram because he didn't think the script captured the vernacular of how real wrestlers talk, he accepted the part only after being given license by Aronofsky to tinker with the dialogue. Despite his extensive knowledge of and experience with combat sports, Rourke spent an additional two months preparing with trainers John Trotsky and Tom Farah as principal photography approached, both of whom can be spotted in the film in brief cameos. Production kicked off in New Jersey at the end of January 2008 and lasted 35 days. A former pro wrestler was hired to oversee production and ensure that wrestling as a sport and a community were depicted as accurately as possible. 
Released in the States on December the 17th, 2008, The Wrestler earned $44 million at the box office and received a torrent of praise. Audiences were stunned by its realistic depiction of physical pain, its emotional immediacy, and Rourke's uncanny performance as a man on the brink of disappearing. It topped the majority of reputable best films of 2008 lists and was the highest-reviewed film on Rotten Tomatoes for the year, bumping The Dark Knight off the top spot. Mickey Rourke and Marissa Tomei were nominated in the Best Actor and Supporting Actress categories, and the wrestling community championed the film. So come with us as we put the wrestler under the microscope. Everyone hears about wrestling and they think it's fake, and so then they think it's a joke and they write it off. But if you're a two, three hundred pound guy jumping off the top rope, you're going to feel it the next day. So that line between what's real and what's fake became very interesting to me. I loved Requiem for a Dream. I saw that in the cinema when it first came out. And I think that's a little bit hyper-realistic at times, and I prefer, I guess, far more realistic movies. And The Wrestler was um, this marriage of that realism and a filmmaker like Aronofsky, so I definitely preferred it. Who is Randy the Ram Robinson, and what makes him sympathetic despite him having led a selfish life? I think part of the reason that he's sympathetic is because you don't see a lot of the selfish life that he's led. You come in at the end of his life, essentially... And so, yeah, yeah, I mean, there's all these references throughout the movie to his drug use and his fall from grace and when he was on top uh, and also the relationship with his daughter. But you don't really see any of that. You just see the after effects of it. And so he becomes almost a pitiable person. The film also shows that the people that are involved in that lifestyle or that industry often come out of it pretty ruined. There's that scene at the fan festival where they're all signing autographs and trying to sell videotapes and everything and hardly anybody rocks up. He's looking and I think the guy to his right's fallen asleep and the guy to his left has a catheter bag. There's a lot of sympathy because of who we see, but if we'd seen how he got there, there might not be that much sympathy. It's funny, I kept thinking of like Lenny from Of Mice and Men. We know that he's really great at what he does. The fact that he won't be able to continue doing this for the rest of his life and you know that he's just scrounging to sort of scrape the remnants of a past he used to have um it's kind of you just it's it's immediately easy to sympathize with someone like that i think aronofsky does something clever in that the first time we really see randy or the first few times that we see him we see him going through pain it's just an immediate audience reaction to sympathize with someone who is going through pain regardless of what kind of person they are you don't want to see anybody going through that and because it's done so graphically and so well we can't feel any other way about it he allows his opponents to cut him strangle him shoot drawing pins into his back with a nail gun there's nothing that he won't do in service of putting on a good show and this career that he has has come at the expense of everything else including having any kind of substantive relationship with anybody he, he's he's thrown it all into this one thing and then the film gives us these two presentiments we know that his heart's going to fail at the same time that we know he's got this big reunion with ayatollah and these two things are coming at the same time And so he has a choice to make. The choice is, well, do I surrender what I love doing and try to forge relationships with these people? Or do I just keep going, even though I know it's essentially a death sentence? And what's really, really compelling about the film is what choice he's going to make. I got a a kid. You have a kid? Well, would he have a boy or a girl? Boy. 
Aronofsky said about Marissa Tomei that she's kind of a mentor. She's much clearer about the divide between the real world and the fantasy world. And there's that scene where she says, well, now I'm going to go and do this. I'm going to go move to Boston. She's essentially, okay, it's over. I can't be a stripper anymore, so I'm going to do this. Randy is nowhere near as clear as that. He never has a definite plan. I think also he, he ultimately makes both of those choices. He, he cancels his match with Ayatollah and then... He does try to, you know, he still fucks up with with Stephanie, his daughter, and then he gets shut down by Pam, and so he makes the other choice. It's worth noting that this is Aronofsky's first and only film without cinematographer Matthew Libertique. Now, the reasons for this are a little bit... uh, There's a lot of conjecture around why this actually happened. People say that he wanted somebody who had a, um, a history in fiction and documentary, but I found a quote from Matthew Libertique when he was doing press for... Black Swan. Uh, I was working with Spike Lee on Miracle at St. Anna at the time and when Darren was when Darren was starting The Wrestler. I don't particularly like leaving early so that's reason number one. And number two, I think we needed a break after The Fountain. It was a very intense experience for the two of us and it strained our relationship a bit. Sometimes you need to grow and we needed time away from each other and ultimately it was a good thing that The Wrestler was made without me. Which I thought was interesting because you can see Aronofsky is a uh, very headstrong director. This is his first foray back into working in 16mm after Pi and he made that choice specifically for the grain structure of film and and 16mm in particular is a lot more grainy. He calls it a proactive documentary style in the sense that with a documentary you, you don't know what's going to happen but in in this one they have an idea of what's going to happen but they let the actors move within the space and he makes a very important distinction that Mickey Rourke won't hit marks he just he's just not one of those actors so he gives him the idea they let him do it and he told Marie's Alberti to light in three, 360 degrees so they could do all these long takes these very handheld tracking shots and, and they can work within that space and the thing that's really interesting to me is the fact that this film and Black Swan are very much sister films in terms of very much style and and interesting enough like Matthew Liberty ended up doing Black Swan in the same style that The Wrestler was done in anyway so I think it was probably more the strained relationship than anything it's just that shifting the parameters from working in really formal compositions in terms of Wrecking for a Dream but more so in The Fountain that film is very much rigid in its formalism whereas these are just it's, it's such a departure in terms of style there's an interview with Maurice Alberti on the Museum of the Moving Image website and she said that it basically meant that they had to work hard. One thing that was really interesting that she said was that there was no storyboards done for yeah. any of the film. Yeah, they said that he was like just really wanting to be open to the moment. Well, I think his early films are very flashy. They're very avant-garde and there's a great emphasis on visual technique so you know with Requiem we get things like hip-hop montages split screens extremely tight close-ups POVs long tracking shots some with the Snorricam which is where the actors actually have the camera strapped to their their body and um, time-lapse photography and you won't find any of this in The Wrestler you know Requiem I think it had between six and seven thousand cuts and a regular film has about two thousand and and in this in in the case of you know Pyre Requiem and The Fountain these techniques were all used to simulate the sensorial experiences of the characters but what we get in The Wrestler is a sort of pared back stripped down less invasive use of technique that emphasizes naturalism and draws attention to the narrative and performances instead of his usual meticulous storyboarding as you say he decided to let the moment Mm. take him where it would and to use the elements around him. 
and it did make for such a striking difference. It's really interesting to see a filmmaker completely break away from one style where he's had a lot of success and then achieve success using a totally different style. It's pretty, yeah, and that's what's interesting is the fact that usually filmmakers will move between different thematic content, but they won't really change their style a lot. A lot of the time their style just moves with the, with the thematic content and the fact that he's made a concerted effort to just completely reinvent the way he shoots a film is a really kind of daring move. So a little bit about Maurice Alberti. Um, She was a French cinematographer with a prolific filmography who began her career as a still photographer on porn films. And I think she really does bring this sort of raw, stripped back quality that gives the film like a verisimilitude, makes the body horror in the film all the more effective because we as the viewer don't have to work too hard to suspend our disbelief. It all very much feels like it really is happening in that moment. Tasha Lane is an assistant professor at the University of Amsterdam and adjunct professor of film studies at the University of Turku. She is the author of Feeling Cinema, Emotional Dynamics in Film Studies, and Shame and Desire, Emotion, Intersubjectivity, Cinema, and most recently Bodies in Pain, Emotion and the Cinema of Darren Aronofsky, an exhaustive study that attempts to explain our responses to Aronofsky's films through an effective lens that engages the five senses. Hello, Taja. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? (laughs) Very good. I'm very excited. Thank you so much for agreeing to talk with me. No problem at all. Do you have a favourite Aronofsky film? It is the worst. What was it about his films that made you want to write about Aronofsky? Uh, Well, actually, I was asked to write uh, about uh, this director. It wasn't my own choice. I had uh, just uh, released my second book on emotions and an editor with uh, Bergman uh, Books asked if I would be uh, if I would be willing to write about emotions uh, in Aronofsky's film. So it wasn't my idea at all. Uh, I don't like, it's not my favorite director, I must say. And I don't always agree with uh, his aesthetic choices. But since the argument in my previous book was that uh, emotions help us to understand uh, the aesthetic uh, uh, and specificity of any film, then I would have to be able to use this methodology uh, to analyze even films that I don't necessarily like. Uh, so it was a really bit challenging project for me to write about this uh, filmmaker uh, to, to begin with. That became a book. I think it certainly does fit with your argument, his films. Uh, you certainly make the point very persuasively in your in your book. Mm-hmm. People, particularly studios, when they come to market an Aronofsky film, because he is a big Hollywood filmmaker, they try to assign genre labels to his films. But you reject this idea that he's a genre filmmaker. Yes. So I was wondering, what do you? What is it about a film like The Wrestler that doesn't make it simply a drama, or Black Swan simply a psychological thriller? Well, I think it is. These are both very character-driven films obviously, and they plunge deep into the minds of the protagonists. These films, they do not necessarily invite identification, so uh, they function differently than uh, most of the uh, most Hollywood films, which uh, very much, very often rely on to what extent we can identify with uh, the protagonists, to mm. imagine ourselves in their place. And I think that these films do not do this. They, uh, in fact, avoid 
So there is an interesting paradox uh, going on there that there is uh, this strong aspect of mental subjectivity and at the same time there is a distance, certain distance. So uh, that makes these films striking and different and not uh, uh, your typical Hollywood formula uh, films. So this differentiates Aronofsky's film from uh, your um, typical Hollywood uh, uh, genre. But, I mean, there are moments in it that are horror film moments. Yeah. You know, you don't feel like you're watching a drama. Uh, And there's also this element of, uh, like, cinema of the body. And it comes so close that the flesh opens and bleeds and there is pain, physical and uh, psychological pain, and it's really painful to watch, at least parts of it. It's full of pain and humiliation and uh, negative emotion, and still you are compelled to watch. Uh, The film really forces you to uh, engage with it emotionally uh, without necessarily sharing with us uh, Randy's pain immediately. So it is it is very, very, uh, very painful, very uh, intriguing experience, uh, the film. At the same time, what also is interesting in this film is Aronofsky's own relationship with his character, because I think that there's true sympathy and affinity uh, and affectivity between the filmmaker uh, himself and his his character. It's very interesting. The cinema of the body, which you talk about in your book, um, it, you, you say that it applies mostly to French filmmakers, or at least initially to French mm-hmm. filmmakers. But yeah. now we've got Hollywood filmmakers like Cronenberg, Lynch and Aronofsky, yes. to whom that applies. Can you just sort of run us through what it actually means and, and what makes those directors distinct? sort of fit that mold? It's uh, all about proximity and it's very often related to physical bodies on screen but it doesn't stop there. It is as if the film itself becomes uh, this bleeding body pain. So there is there is a lot of proximity between the spectator and the protagonists but also between the spectator and the film itself. So it's typified with a lot of close-ups of decaying skin Skin, bleeding skin, uh, for instance, this proximity is really becomes a question of overwhelming experience. On the level of the film aesthetics, but also, uh, not only on the level of contents, but also on the level of film, film aesthetics, including uh, the body of the film, or the skin of the film, as sometimes referred to. Um, I know one of your ambitions in writing this book is to explain how we have physical responses to Aronofsky's depiction of pain. What are those responses in your view? What physical responses are they? And what bearing do they have on our overall feeling for the film? Well, the chilling reactions that really can be felt on on your own skin. For instance, when you think of the wrestler and all these close-ups of injuries and and marks of physical harm, it feels as if we, our own skin, (laughs) referring to this horrible scene with uh, the necro-butcher where you have these close-ups of nail and that, mm. that sort of it is so proximate that it feels as if your own skin is being hurt in this process when you watch scene like, scenes like these you get this very shivering chilling uh, sensation on your on your own skin because we are not watching only with our eyes we are watching with our whole body it is as if our skin becomes this uh, perceiving uh, organ watching painful scenes like this so it is uh, it is a very very complete experience that these films often give us especially wrestler so it is not pain only on the uh, psychological level but also very much on the physical level and of course these are connected in very uh, many complex ways. Filmmakers like Aronofsky who who make you do feel like you're maybe three steps closer to the pain on screen Mm -hmm. 
than say a conventional filmmaker would. Do you think that comes down to talent or is that a very deliberate choice to make a film that way? I think it is a very interesting question because I, if I can share uh, uh, share a personal anecdote, Please. I'm currently studying to become a visual artist. And uh, in, in that process, I have come to the conclusion that talent doesn't exist. It is all a question about uh, uh, wanting to learn something and being open to basically learning new, thi- learning new things and learning to see. Filmmaking and all visual arts, I think it is very much a question of uh, learning to observe reality very closely. Uh, so, no, I don't think it's a talent. It is just uh, a question of seeing things in a very unique way. Uh, and you can train yourself to do that. I could only speculate why Aronofsky is thematically uh, always interested in uh, stuff like that. I think that's the question that you uh, have to ask. Yes. <laughs> Talent, it is a way of perceiving, the, a way of looking at things. Why was Francis Bacon interested in pain and Aronofsky's film can become very overwhelming experience? Yeah, I guess it's just uh, some kind of preference absolutely what what he chooses to i suppose what his passion is what he chooses to put on the on the screen for us your your chapter on the wrestler um is uh called masochism i was wondering do you think we as an audience respond differently to an injured character when it's self-inflicted or voluntarily taken as opposed to when we see someone get attacked by or injured by another and this is a very uh interesting question as well i think that the film is obviously uh, like he, he does these things to a certain extent, voluntarily. This film is basically about desire. And, and my discussion of uh, the film is based on uh, Sartre and uh, Sartre's idea of these famous slogans such as, a man is a useless desire. How do we deal with this fundamental fundamental human condition? That's another thing. And I think that Randy's masochism is a failed attempt to put his own desire into a more productive practice. He can't channel his desire in more ways other than these old accustomed ways of being in the world. So even though he does it voluntarily, it is not necessarily based on free will. That's the tragedy in this film. So, yes, it's masochism, but it, it, is it really voluntarily? When it's entrapment, because he, he's an entrapped character. He's, he's trapped in, in some kind of past uh, habits, old habits, old ways of being that do not match with uh, the ways of the world. He's trying to find his way out. He is really trying, uh, especially in this uh, beautiful scene with uh, his daughter. Well, well, he doesn't manage. And the only way he can deal with the situation is fall back to these old ways of being and masochism. And he knows he's dying. He knows he's committing a suicide. So it is a very, very, very complex sort of masochism. It's not comparable to those, uh, like, for instance, sexual practices that can be consciously uh, uh, done. Yeah. It is, it is, he's trapped in some kind of negative way of being and he can't get out. And, he, and it's different from that because he doesn't seek the pain. Rather, it's just sort of like a side effect of what he does see. Exactly. What he wants to do is perform. He, he's an entertainer. It's a side effect. He, he does not seek that. He seeks to entertain and engage with his audience. Himself explicitly says at the end of the film, he knows that this fight is going to be fatal. Yeah. So it's a sort of, kind of like a sublime moment in a very strange way. It is the ultimate final choice. Yeah. It is a very sad choice. Well, he could have chosen otherwise. He is given a chance for a different sort of choice when Cassidy shows up. But then uh, ultimately he rejects this alternative opportunity that is given to him 
very cautiously, I think. Yeah. yeah, and I think that this film could not have ended differently. You know, in your book, Aronofsky said, I think in the audio commentary for Requiem for a Dream, that when he starts development on a project, he tries to come up with a visual style that is born from the narrative. Yeah. How do you think that applies to The Wrestler, given that the film sort of marks a dramatic shift, at least stylistically, from his previous yes. films? Well, I think it makes sense perfectly because uh, the, the, the world and the character he is describing is, this is not a nice word, but white trash. Uh, and, um, he is, well, he's not educated and he is not a very sophisticated character, working class. Uh, like blue collar. This is what uh, the milieu that Aronofsky, the whole aesthetic of this film reflects what Randy is, like the opportunities that have been given to him in his life. The whole milieu reflects on this and even though we are not uh, told explicitly what kind of childhood he has had or what kind of relationship with his parents or what kind of schools he's been doing, what happened there. None of this is explicitly told us, but still we get the idea what kind of life he has had by means of the mise-en-scene of this film. It's ugly. Uh, I'm very plain, uh, <laughs> except for some exceptions. But this tells us something about this, the history of this this character, uh, these aesthetic choices that Aronofsky has made with uh, the mise-en-scene and the setting of this film are very insightful. I was wondering if you thought maybe the fact that it is more of a character study, do you think he just yes. decided to taper back all of the wizardry? Yes, I think so, because why would you stick just to one style only? Because I think the danger in that for uh, a filmmaker or for every artist is that if you only continue doing what you can do perfectly, then it becomes a mannerism. Aronofsky probably consciously wanted to avoid this because he, he seems also to change his style continuously. There are some similarities between The Wrestler and The Black Swan, for instance, but also in, in uh, important differences all in service of the story that he wants to tell and the character that he wants to portray. So, so I think what he does is thinks very carefully, what is this character all about? And then, uh, based on that idea, he then invents or makes these stylistic choices in order to best reflect that character. This is uh, also very striking in his films that it is all of them are character studies. And it's more important than uh, the storyline. Mm. for instance, to depict in a very striking visual style the mental, emotional state of mind of his central protagonist. I wanted to know if there was anything you're working on at the moment or, or anything you can tell us about that you're doing. I am currently myself uh, at school, so I am in fourth year of my art education. I have to do exam this year, so I'm basically just trying to finish some projects that are still in working progress. But I do have all, all kind of ideas uh, about what my future research uh, shall be about. You know, uh, we are currently living in a very interesting age that some people call the age of post-truth. And I know that emotions are uh, getting a very bad press at the moment. Uh, for instance, if you think of the actual election of uh, Donald Trump and the arguments that have been given for why he was uh, elected as a president, that, that these choices were based on emotions 
as uh, some kind of irrational affects uh, instead of uh, rational thinking processes. Uh, and, and whilst it's true that emotions uh, can sometimes be irrational and stand in the way of rational decision-making, I think that emotions are mostly rational. And it troubles me a little bit that this current discourse uh, is telling us something uh, opposite. And I want to show how emotions actually can be rational and very important as ethical agents. So they are also aiding us in ethical decision-making and not only in rational decision-making. And I was thinking that these dystopian films are very popular at the moment. So um, I have been thinking about doing a study into emotions in these films, how these emotions function in films such as The Hunger Games and uh, the Divergent uh, series, not only as triggers for rational action, but also for ethical action, and why these films are considered so inspiring, basically, at the moment. Those are the ideas that I have been playing with. Thank you, Taja Lane, for speaking with us. To find out more about Taja, you can visit her publisher, Bloom Fairy Publishing. Also, her book, Bodies in Pain, Emotion in the Cinema of Darren Aronofsky, is available in paperback in March. I want to talk for a minute about New Jersey and how it looks in the film because many people have called this an ugly film and in a lot of ways I think it is. Aronofsky's really good at drawing out the urban ugliness. He did this in Requiem for a Dream with Long Island, you know, where the city appears drab and run down and depressing. But the color palette here is far more muted and there's a real melancholy to Randy's world as if it too has had its best days behind it and is now kind of staggering to the finish line. There was a review in a French magazine called Liberation, a guy named Philip Azuri, hope I'm saying that right. He described The Wrestler and the way New Jersey looked as capturing the ugliness of the American heartland, horizontal and flat, cities built along a highway, the brutalizing ugliness of a landscape that was formerly that of a pure utopia and which has finally come to resemble a zone of industrial consumption that no longer sets anyone dreaming. So this film really plays with the idea of America being in a state of erosion and presents the American dream ideology in a post-industrial age as a thing of the past. It's been replaced by extreme disillusionment. I want you to give this to your little guy. It's a, it's a Randy the Ram action figure. <laughs> Tell him not to lose it. It's a $300 collector's item. Really? No. <laughs> Both characters have personas. Randy... The Ram Robinson is a persona. He's Robin Ramzinski, even though he doesn't want to accept that that's his name. And Cassidy the Stripper is also Pam the Mother. Randy has always, throughout his life, he's put up these walls. He's, he's Randy the Ram Robinson. So I guess everything that's connected to the real person has been kind of pushed aside. And Pam has done the same. I think so much of it's about control as well. Because the Ram is strong and kind of inconquerable, you know, everything is is staged. They know who's going to win, who's going to lose, how it's going to go. So he has supreme control there. And it's the same with uh, Cassidy. She controls men's desires. She's sexy and lithe and in control. But in the real world, he's got a weak heart, a daughter that won't talk to him. He's completely at the mercy of everyone. And so is Pam. She's like clawing and fighting to keep her, her and her son afloat. The fantasy worlds that they inhabit are safer and are kinder to them. Yeah, much safer. Randy's world, he's adored. 
he he really by that community he's he's adored it it's a it's a comfort it's obviously a love of his whereas pam she's not adored in that world at all she's most of the time treated like shit that's an interesting dichotomy i think like the fact that she she's a lot more aware of it probably because she's treated like shit in her world so she probably reflects a lot more on those constructs rather than randy would because he would just be floating along with the fact that everyone's loving him essentially I think Marissa Tomei is fantastic casting but I feel like in the real world she would probably not be treated as badly as she is because she is so stunning stunning and for someone to be in her I I guess she'd be mid 40s in that or early 40s in that time she's very attractive Aronofsky does well though at lighting her so that he does draw out the wrinkles and there are a few where we see heavy shadows on her face she's very very clear at knowing Randy as a customer whereas Randy he treats her like she's a girlfriend you know he he's confused about that line it would actually be comical if it hadn't been framed in such a sad way, this whole film. But it's, it isn't funny. It's just really sad. No, it's not funny at all. No, it's really, it's really awful. It was, uh, watching it again, I realised it's pretty damn depressing. From the director of Requiem for a Dream, you think it would be just really, you know... Sudsy comedy. Professional wrestling as we know it today got its start in 19th century Europe, born out of a mix of Greco-Roman wrestling and theatre. It gained in popularity in the Americas and Japan from about the 1930s. From the 1950s and on throughout the 1980s, wrestling was governed in the United States by the National Wrestling Alliance, or NWA. The NWA was comprised of various territories, all of which largely stuck to promoting shows within well-defined boundaries and were visible only on local television. They each had a roster of their own performers, but would share the NWA's travelling world champion. In 1963, the promoter of the New York area WWF, World Wrestling Federation Territory, Vincent J. McMahon, refused to recognise an NWA world title change and subsequently seceded from the alliance. By the start of the 1980s, the WWF had changed hands from Vince Sr. to his son Vince Jr., and the younger McMahon decided to do away with the old ways and expand nationally. Vince poached talent from other territories. In return, Jim Crockett, owner of Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling, purchased various other NWA promotions. Now there were two companies attempting to go national, both with valuable television exposure behind them. Unfortunately for Crockett, his acquisition spree caused him to declare bankruptcy in 1988, and his assets were purchased by media mogul Ted Turner and turned into what became known as World Championship Wrestling. Vince McMahon, meanwhile, had used stars such as Andre the Giant and Hulk Hogan, who'd just had a starring role in Rocky III, to create the professional wrestling boom of the 1980s. He pioneered the use of emerging pay-per-view technology, major events held three or four times a year on cable television, accessible only by a subscription model. This period, from about 1985 through to the end of the decade, is the period represented in The Wrestler as Randy the Ram Robinson's peak. His story in the film is similar to that of Hulk Hogan, His match versus the Ayatollah at the Garden, for instance, echoes the Hulk Hogan versus Macho Man Randy Savage main event at WrestleMania V. McMahon moved wrestling into the mainstream by featuring celebrities, including Mr. T, Muhammad Ali, Cindy Lauper, Liberace, Aretha Franklin and others. He formed a working partnership with MTV and wrestlers routinely appeared on the channel, as well as producing children's shows such as Hulk Hogan's Rockin' Wrestling on CBS. McMahon's WWF, now known as the WWE, continued growing and eventually made him a billionaire. 
His wife and co-owner of WWE, Linda McMahon, was recently named to President Donald Trump's cabinet as the head of the Small Business Administration. The president himself has a long history with the WWE. He hosted WrestleMania events in 1988 and 1989 in his own Trump Plaza building in Atlantic City, New Jersey, and has been a featured guest at many other major events. He was used as an on-screen talent several times throughout the 2000s, even competing by proxy in a hair versus hair contest with Vince, in which the loser had to have his head shaved. This match was appropriately dubbed the Battle of the Billionaires. Trump was even inducted into the WWE Hall of Fame in 2013 to a chorus of boos. I watched the film and then I think the next day I got up and I was sitting with my dad and he said to me, because, you know, my dad's really unwell, he's, you know, over 60 now, and he said to me, uh, getting old sucks. And that's something that we hear a lot of old people, older people say. The film's biggest question and the central sadness in the film is what do you do when you can't do what you love anymore? And that's what both of these characters are asking themselves. And it's a question that all of us at, at some time we'll ask ourselves and we have to find a way to keep going because what choice do we have you know it's saddening sobering message but it's not one you see in film much pam again is very pragmatic and and has gone okay i know that i'm ending my career as a stripper if you can call it a career and then has those plans to buy a condo has these backup steps in place whereas randy just is all he's known yeah he makes some fledgling attempts you know, he tries to reconnect with his daughter. He tries to, to kind of clean it out of his life. They're kind of these pathetic little attempts. And then ultimately he decides, no, I can't do this. And one of the things that surprised Aronofsky when he was making it was that there's no union or any kind of protection or insurance or anything like that for professional wrestlers. So they often they have to continue to work to get money. Usually they don't have a lot of education behind them. And I wanted to cite, there's a documentary that was released in 1999 called Beyond the Mat. And there's a story, it follows three or four wrestlers in there, but there's a story about Jake the Snake Roberts. And it's really echoed in the wrestler, even down to the bit where he's trying to reconnect with his estranged daughter. But there's a wrestler in there called Terry Funk who's constantly fighting retirement matches and his knees are gone. And the doctor shows him, says, you shouldn't even be able to walk. In real life, he does those bloody barbed wire kind of matches that you see in the movie and he's 72 years old today and he's still wrestling as recently as four months ago so that's how much they continue to work and continue to put their bodies through this because that's all they know and you know prolonged use of steroids and uh, the lifestyle the fact that it generally involves a lot of partying and social drugs and the things you've mentioned means that there are some scary statistics with life expectancy in 1990 the WWF held Wrestlemania 6 and that was their major event there were 36 performers on the show 21 of them are still alive which means that 15 have died since then and of those 15 eight of them died in their 40s and another two in their 50s premature death in wrestling is a huge problem and the majority of people that you hear about have died prematurely it's shocking that they've died but usually yeah heart attacks and problems like that that are distinctly related to steroid use and performance enhancing drugs or just drugs in general our new swan queen the exquisite nina sayers 
this is explored in great detail as well in Black Swan in terms of ballet dancers have a shelf life. Their bodies and what they do to them are explicitly shown in the in the film. And it's just really interesting that they are such parallels. And it's interesting that uh, Black Swan, the shelf life, they're much younger when they're no longer able to do it anymore. Yeah. You know, we're talking, you know, you hit over 30 and you have to stop. They've got a long time after their careers yeah. that they've got to find something else to do. But... I guess people who are drawn to professional wrestling or drawn to working with that body are usually of a lower socioeconomic background. The people who are drawn to ballet and performance in ballet would probably, I guess, be more likely to have, a, have other avenues after that to make money. Another thing, another difference that's interesting is that the wrestler is done, I suppose, if you had to put it in a genre, you would say drama, whereas Black Swan is done as a psychological thriller slash horror. And so that makes the experience of watching them very different, even though thematically, they are very similar. They're both horrific, though. They are both horrific. Yeah, I mean, that scene where she's standing on her the tips of her toes in Black Swan, I mean, that is as hard to watch as anything in The Wrestler. And, you know, we'll have to talk about Black Swan again. Hopefully we get to do an episode on it um, in the future sometime, because I think it's definitely... It <laughs> I think it's definitely worth talking about. <laughs> We're joined this month by Yadranka Skorenkapov, who is a professor in the College of Business at the State University of New York at Stony Brook. She's also the author of several theoretical studies, including Darren Aronofsky's films and The Fragility of Hope. Thanks for joining us, Yadranka. Thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me. Um, when did you first become interested in the films of Darren Aronofsky and what was it that drew you to them? Uh, what drew me to Aronofsky was uh, uh, that his films uh, deal with issues about strength and fragility of human existence. And I find his films uh, uh, quite philosophical in uh, illustrating uh, elements of humanity when most vulnerable, as in obsession, addiction, uh, grips with mortality, identity crisis, uh, quest for perfection and dealing with the duality of good and evil. You ask what drew me to Aronofsky. Actually, when I saw uh, Black Swan, uh, his movie, for the first time, and when the uh, choreographer in that movie uh, uh, relays perfection to surprise, he said perfection uh, is not only about control, uh, let it go, surprise yourself. And my philosophical interest is in uh, aesthetics, in the phenomenology of aesthetic experience, especially of uh, phenomenology of surprise. So after seeing that, I knew I had to, to write about Aronofsky filmography. And then I uh, went back through all his movies uh, from 1998 to uh, ending with nine, 2014. Uh, what drew me to him are because uh, his narratives are predominantly character-based, uh, concerned with uh, characters' existential crisis that are induced by, uh, by extreme mental states and that they're finding a possible way out. This existential feel of Aronofsky's movies uh, justifies, for, for me, labeling him as an existential director in art uh, philosophical parallel with an existential philosophers. That's why in my book I relate his films to a number of existential philosophers like Kierkegaard, Jaspers, Heidegger and others. Were you familiar with his work before you saw Black Swan? Had you seen any of his previous movies? I saw it there. I liked 
like it. So Pi, being a mathematician by original training, it was very interesting to me, that movie. And the wrestler was interesting along different lines. But after I decided to write after Black Swan, I went into more depth and found some other things that maybe I didn't realize on the first watching it. But your book is subtitled The Fragility of Hope, and that's certainly present in Aronofsky's work and it's one of the main reasons I find that The Wrestler really hits you in the gut when you watch it really leaving you feeling down and out can you explain this theory the fragility of hope for us yes actually uh, as we all know hope uh, has a great power motivating people to extreme behavior but sometimes that results with uh, extreme uh, states like an obsession as in pie or addiction as in the requiem or the search for immortality impossible things as in as in the fountain or defiance of the process of aging as in the wrestler that we'll talk about or the quest to achieve artistic perfection as in black uh, swan or responsibility to eradicate the evil in humanity, which is not possible to eradicate. So a character going to extreme shows, on the other hand, then the fragility of hope. So as much as hope can bring us to great heights, uh, when it turns to extreme, can uh, become very fragile and can crash on our human existence. So that's why I, I decided to name these Aronofsky films and the fragility of hope instead of the strength of hope. In your book, the section on the wrestler is further titled The Gift of Death, which I found yes. really interesting and you're writing on that. Um, and you write that Randy's death is, quote, the final victory of his life. And do you think that's how Randy feels in the movie? When you uh, interpret movie, you interpret it through your own prism. <laughs> and the, the issue of death uh, is, uh, is very uh, contested issues. In my view, I think Randy feels feels like that. The way the movie ends, uh, leaving Randy uh, Torso in the air, uh, I think it's a great ending because it's not uh, closed. It's open-ended. If I'm inclined, hopefully, I can think uh, maybe he'll survive and continue with his life. Or if I'm inclined more realistically, I can think, well, he will die, but maybe is it better to die like this? Or is it better to continue life in a miserable way? The way the film is presented and the ending, I think it perfectly captures his uh, his role. For example, if in the movie he would go with Pam, the, the stripper that he is interested in, and they live happily ever after, people would exit the theater in a happy mood, but maybe this would be a fake ending. I certainly agree with that. If it had closed nicely in the, in the standard Hollywood ending, which is not really something yes. that Aronofsky he does then it would have almost cheated the characters a little bit yes. and and the audience because certainly the ending as it is is ambiguous and it is open to interpretation and that does as you say that does come down to the way that you're feeling at the time as well and I guess there's certainly plenty of examples of hopelessness at the end of Aronofsky's films and in addition to The Wrestler I guess uh, Requiem for a Dream is a, a yeah. pretty big example of that as well um, you state in your book that Randy closes all avenues for continuity of his life. And I'd say that in Requiem, despite the circumstances of the characters, they never hope for death. And it feels like Randy's a little bit different. And he's even presented with that opportunity to pursue some kind of relationship with Pam right before he goes out to the ring that final time. In that respect, do you think the wrestler is almost the most hopeless of Aronofsky's films because he consciously makes that decision if, if we do end up reading it that he dies at the end? Yeah, maybe, because as you said, there is a hope. Maybe he could have changed that a little bit and he throws the last look uh, where uh, 
him for standing. She's already mm-hmm. gone. But maybe he could have jumped on, on that situation. It certainly would be more hopeful than the characters from the Requiem. But uh, on the other hand, we saw him trying a life outside after, after he was injured, and it didn't go quite well. The wrestler is based a lot in fact. There is a lot of that kind of hopelessness and, and pushing your body past its limits and just a lack of success in other fields does tend to keep people coming back time and time again in that industry. Yeah, there are real wrestlers in the movie, but still the movie leaves a hope. This character of Bob Ayatollah, he mm-hmm. left wrestling and I think he's a successful car salesman. He yes. comes back for a rematch, but it's not that every wrestler has to end up as Randy does. That makes Randy a memorable character. There is not only Randy, but there is also Pam, and, and her journey echoes Randy in a different way in a different industry. Aronofsky has done that throughout his career. He's had these um, different juxtaposed lives that are dealing with the same kind of issue in a different way. Yes, you are right. And, uh, certainly, Pam lives of her body, similarly as Randy, uh, Randy entertaining people, but she is more realistic and uh, save some money and uh, can possibly go back to some different type of life so it doesn't have to end up as Randy. As you said rightly that Aronofsky uh, has uh, similar characters in uh, Nina, the ballerina from Black Swan, has also lots of parallels with uh, Randy. Although the wrestling is low entertainment, while ballet is high entertainment, but relying on, on body and uh, performance might have some similarities. You do an interview in your book with Darren, and it's just before he released Noah. And yes. You ask a few questions about each movie. Obviously, you were limited uh, with the amount of time that you had with him, but he seemed to avoid talking about the end of the film when you asked him about that, and he didn't really want to give his uh, views on death. He said that the movies speak for themselves. But you asked if Randy was a coward or a hero for making that final jump. And your view, uh, what, what is your view on that? Does it come down to how you're feeling at the time? I would uh, put him more towards uh, the hero than the coward category, but this this is my personal (laughs) view. I think life is uh, the most precious uh, thing, but if there is no hope, Randy is not a real person. When I say uh, this is more heroic, maybe this is not correct, because he's not a real person. A real person is uh, Robin Razinski, who does not exist anymore. Yeah. Randy lives a virtual, a virtual life. So he already killed <laughs> years ago the real person. So in that sense, I think artistically it makes sense to end the movie the way it's done. I think I can understand. Is it worth living at all costs or not? This is the, the question that every person has to, to answer. There are people that end heroically, that would give a, a life for your country or for your children. So there are heroic. This is not heroic in, in such a sense but uh, maybe he achieves authenticity uh, at the end because this is the only way to unify all aspects of his personality and as you say the wrestler is uh, low entertainment black swan is high entertainment but maybe they both do in their separate occupations achieve that perfection as well low and uh, high entertainment uh, when you look at wrestlers uh, they are very polite they respect each other they call each other sir so there is lots of connectivity and uh, warm relationships among them and they have to perform brutal acts in front of the audience. As opposed to that, in the ballerina world, uh, you see big competition. <laughs> they are mm. on throats to each other, but then it has to be very nicely presented uh, at the stage. So I think that this uh, difference between relationships is also interesting. As we've talked about, there's obviously thematic similarities between the two films. 
as you say in your book, they both finish with an implied death. But there's one film with a male lead in a male-dominated world and one with a female lead in a female-dominated world. Um, is there anything you, you you can say about the gender or the use of gender in those two movies? I write about Black Swan. I mentioned some critiques that the film is against female personalities because Nina is a victim. And actually, I think it's not right to put such a rich film under gender policies. There are movies that take that poet society. Male character kills himself because there is no understanding for his artistic performance. I, I don't see very big difference uh, that, that Black Swan is a film about females or if this would be about a male performer. To me, uh, this film is more about the birth of an artist. And if uh, one is inclined, uh, hopefully, or not pessimistically, as I understand, the film can be seen as a, a period of uh, becoming a true artist, achieving uh, artistic uh, perfection. So maybe all this is just a hallucination of a ballerina, but would not put uh, too much emphasis on uh, gender. They are also, in a sense, uh, I think very different in one respect. The wrestler is done in a documentary style, which mm -hmm. has to be, because you see the old wrestler, Randy the Ram, who is already overtaken by his persona. We don't uh, know his transformation, how he became uh, from Robin Razinski, how he became Randy the Ram. We just uh, saw him now, and uh, you don't have hallucinatory scenes, you don't have uh, fast, irrational cuts, all those hip-hop montage that is uh, associated with Aronofsky movies before that. It's in a documentary style, while Black Swan presents artistic transformation. So we go inside Nina's head, <laughs> but we never go inside uh, the uh, head of Randy, because uh, he, he has a mask, uh, his persona for entertainment. So in that case, they are also different. Black Swan obviously made you want to write this book and uh, talking to you, you're very, very familiar with Aronofsky's movies. In your book, you also talk about a lot of um, other filmmakers, Rainer Werner Fassbinder and uh, yes. Federico yes. Fellini. Um, so obviously you're a huge fan of cinema in general. Would that be fair yes. to say? Yes, cinematic junkie. <laughs> yeah. And uh, who, who, who are the other filmmakers that interest you? In addition to Aronofsky, one of my best-loved filmmakers is Stanley Kubrick. Lots of his movies. Then, as I grew up, directors that I would like the most would be Ingmar Bergman, Federico Fellini, Akira Kurosawa, Roman Polanski... Uh, Krzysztof Kieślowski, Mikhail Haneke, but also American. I like uh, Spielberg movies. I like very much uh, Ang Lee uh, movies. And uh, now, since uh, I, in my college of business, I, I teach a class on uh, business ethics through film. Then I came across some younger uh, directors that I find very interesting. Uh, J.C. Chandor, uh, Jason Reitman. The list would go on. Yeah, <laughs> they do, don't they? What are you working on right now in addition to uh, new books or anything like that? Since I uh, uh, teach the, this class on uh, business ethics to film, because I think uh, that using narrative film uh, to depict uh, challenging ethical dilemmas, uh, students can engage in critical thinking, evaluation of moral uh, standards, and it can serve as a simulator for uh, explanation learning. And uh, I'm uh, working on a book uh, manuscript uh, provisionally called... Uh, morality and business ethics through film via acting, managing, uh, leading. So we'll see how it goes. Thank you for joining us on uh, this episode of the podcast, Radranka. Well, thank you very much, Damien. I appreciate your interest and good luck uh, with, uh, with your work. 
You can pick up Yudranka's book, Darren Aronofsky's Films and the Fragility of Hope, through the publisher, Bloomsbury Publishing. I wanted to raise this idea of spectatorship because not only do we watch Randy, we watch the spectators watching Randy, which puts us in an interesting position as a viewer. And because we're in Randy's corner and we see what he puts himself through to achieve the effect of violence and bloodletting that his fans pay to see, we kind of hate the spectators, or at least I did. Now, I should point out that the wrestling match scenes in the film were shot with real wrestlers in front of real wrestling audiences. And in a sense, the spectators are the villains, because without them, there'd be no market for this kind of entertainment that Randy excels at. And yet, conversely, the fans are the only ones who really see Randy. Not only do they see him, but they turn him into a warrior-like figure. They provide the only kind of love Randy is able to give back, and the only love he's earned. I'm an old, broken-down piece of meat, and I'm alone. And I deserve to be all alone. I just don't want you to hate me. Seeing a man with the physical stature of Ram being reduced to sort of near begging is really heartbreaking, and you know that he's done some awful things for him to be in that state. I I agree with you. I think it's the casting of Evan Rachel Wood that is key to why this relationship works. I think she is fantastic in the film. I think that's really interesting as well because in every scene that they have, Evan Rachel Wood is tiny, but she always feels like she's taller than Ram. In every one of like she has the card, she has the power in all of those in all of those scenes. Obviously, there's that scene where he goes off and parties and then and misses the misses the dinner, which is so heartbreaking because there's a selfishness to it. But I just I think it's just him being aloof. Yeah, I think it's subconscious self-sabotage. Yeah. She's this kind of alternative kid. We sense she's probably a lesbian, that she's living with her partner because that roommate was way too invested in her problems to just be a roommate. I think she's sort of had a very wounded upbringing and life in part because of his neglect of her. I think it's interesting that you are coming into this relationship knowing about as much as Randy knows about his daughter. You know, he's been an absent father. So like he is, you're getting to know her all over again and he comes out with these little bits and pieces that he remembers from her childhood which is really kind of makes it more heartfelt it's more emotional for you hearing him talk about the memories being down on the shore the original script stephanie was the one that reached out to randy she was in an aa program and she was making amends and she catches him while during one of his fights and he gets distracted by a fan and she realizes that he hasn't changed at all he's still putting wrestling first and i'm really glad i think it was a really intelligent decision not to include her until after cassidy suggested he go and seek her out that it be randy's gesture as time goes by they said he's washed up He's finished. He's a loser. He's all through. You know what? The only ones who are going to tell me when I'm through doing my thing is you people here. Why does Randy ultimately choose to sacrifice himself to the world of illusion where there is no future? It comes down to that final shot of the movie, which is really very important as well the choices that he makes because he knows he's made these decisions he's made the decision not to go through with that match and he's given so many outs during the match oh let's just finish it let's just finish it but I also think it's been shown pretty clearly throughout the movie that Randy doesn't deal well with rejection and he's constantly getting rejected 
throughout the whole movie by Pam and by his daughter. He's very much the fuck up that Stephanie calls him. Um, and the only place that he's really not is in the ring. Ultimately, his choice is to, to go back in the ring, even when he's presented with an opportunity, as Pam does at the end of the movie, to remove himself from that and go and start something new. I like that the film doesn't simplify it, that it is still a choice because Stephanie very definitively says, I never want to see you again. And you know, the last time Randy had seen Pam, she'd sort of said a similar thing, but she turns up and she says to him, I'm here. I'm really here. What do you call that? He hasn't totally been rejected by the real world. There is a still a piece of it that will take him if he'll have it. One thing that we haven't talked about is the 80s and the influence of the 80s in this film. He hates 90s music. He hates Nirvana. He says, oh, aren't we allowed to have a good time? But I mean, he doesn't even have a mobile phone. We see him use a, pay, a, a phone booth, which must be the very last in existence. He's still living like he would have done in 1986 and it's it's very that of course is very you know sad and the whole film is kind of populated with these kind of 80s rock songs there was only one other thing I wanted to talk about and I'm sure both of you probably in your research came across this but the wrestler was condemned in some quarters as being an anti-Iranian film and it really has to do with one scene at the end did you read this? I didn't where Randy breaks a pole bearing the Iranian flag and that's the flag of the Ayatollah so uh, various members of the Iranian government accused the film of propagating ethnic stereotypes and of misleadingly depicting Iranians as Arabs. It's always been a prop that's used in that industry right people's nationalities and movies do it to an extent as well I mean during the height of the cold war in the 80s they're all always Russian villains I guess you can get offended about something like that or you can view it as this is some kind of I guess a display of patriotic storytelling and that's pretty much what it is in wrestling the same way that it is in movies that American movies use American characters and they typically use the nationality that they're opposed to ideologically at the time. So the fact that they're perpetuating a stereotype, I don't really understand the offence there. But Iranian people aren't Arabic, and in Western culture, I think we have a tendency to lump together some countries, uh, you know, and and their cultures. When did the film say that the guy was an Arab? He's dressed as an Arab. He's wearing the Arab garb. Right. In a way, I think, well, you know, Americans would be the first one to depict characters burning up American flags and nobody would bat an eye. We see representations of anti-Americans in movies all the time. But those, those are our values. That harks back to the First Amendment and to free speech and all of these ideas that we hold tightly to and we believe in. But by saying, well, we're okay with burning our own flag, so you should be okay when we burn yours, is kind of projecting our value system onto another country. And I don't know how I feel about that. I think it's a... I think it's a- a much smaller version of burning the flag, a much lesser version of it. I suppose. But then again, that's us projecting our value system onto somebody else. I don't really know where I stand because I don't care. I'm sorry that people were offended by a film, but get over it. This idea of national patriotism and of borders has suddenly become a hot-button issue because of Donald Trump, who is now making that a major issue and something that the whole world has their eye on. I find it very bizarre that you've got a movie about a scripted form of entertainment and that people would find that offensive when this has been happening for many, many, many decades, if not longer than that. I find it strange that anybody 
gets offended by a film ever. I don't understand that. It's entertainment. It's art. You don't like it. Don't watch it. I don't understand being offended, but I do understand sometimes when you have a feeling of um, ill regard towards a film. Like, for instance, I don't like Scarface. When I watch that, I feel like the film feels like it's cool and violence is cool and Mm -hmm. cocaine is cool. And that bothers me because it seems adolescent. I don't like anyone promoting drug use or violence. I think it makes them look really stupid. I think it depends on the drug. Ultimately as well, I think that the Ayatollah's character, and he's played by a guy named Ernest Miller, but I think he's shown in a very respectful manner otherwise. Apart from that, he's shown looking out for Randy and being, I guess, a really nice guy. He doesn't want him to continue if he's having heart problems. So, Damien, tell us about the release and reception of The Wrestler. So, The Wrestler was released to cinemas on December 17, 2008, right in the middle of Oscar season. It grossed $26.2 million in the United States and another $18.4 million overseas for a total of $44.6 million on its $6 million budget. This tripled the gross of Aronofsky's previous film, The Fountain, although it was blown away by his 2010 release, Black Swan. The box office success of The Wrestler is really quite special though because it opened small and expanded slowly to really only the art house circuit. It maxed out at 776 screens compared to Black Swan's 2,500. The film obviously received excellent reviews, as you said before, Luke. The most famous review of the film was written by David Anson of Newsweek and was used on the film's marketing. Witness the resurrection of Mickey Rourke, it said, although this was a paraphrase of the actual review. Anson wrote, The miracle and mystery of perfect casting came to mind at the Toronto Film Festival as I sat alongside 580 enthralled viewers witnessing the resurrection of Mickey Rourke. To say this is a great comeback for an actor whose talent was exceeded only by his self-destructiveness is obvious, but this was a kind of harmonic convergence of player and part that happens once in a blue moon. Roger Ebert of the Chicago Sun-Times gave the film four stars, saying that the most fascinating element in Darren Aronofsky's film is the backstage detail about wrestling. He does this so well, yet has never made a film even remotely like this before. We learn how they make themselves bleed, prepare for violent surprises, talk through each match. As nearly as I can tell, their planning only means that they get hurt in the ways they expect and not in unforeseen ways. Kenneth Turan of the Los Angeles Times didn't like the film. He called it cold and fake, stating that things start to fall apart when the wrestler's determination to wallow in the pain of Robinson's bouts reveals itself. A certain amount of that is necessary, but this film pushes well beyond that, yearning for the excessive until it feels like Aronofsky and company are making a fetish of audience discomfort. And for any of our Australian listeners, you'll be pleased to know that both Margaret and David loved the film, rating it five and four and a half. Alright guys, are we ready for the quiz? We're ready. Okay, so by all means, play along at home if you're listening. We're going to start with Damien. Okay. As a publicity stunt to promote the film, it was announced that Mickey Rourke would compete at WrestleMania 25, but the actor ultimately pulled out and instead attended the event as a guest. Which wrestler was he supposed to fight? He was supposed to fight Chris Jericho. Oh, that's one for you. And in the end, Chris Jericho fought three other people and then Mickey Rourke, he beat them all and then Mickey Rourke came out and knocked him out. Well, now you're just showing up. <laughs> I'm not going to do well with this quiz. Mickey Rourke's very first screen credit is in a film directed by Steven Spielberg. What was the film? Can you give me an era? Early. And one of his lesser known films. 
I'm going to say either... Can I say two? No. Uh, <laughs> all right, I'll, I'll say 1941. Correct. Oh, damn, I would have gone close encounters. Question three, Damien. Marissa Tomei was nominated for an Oscar for this film, which brought her total number of nominations to what? Two. Three. Oh. Um, she'd previously been nominated for In the Bedroom and My Cousin Vinny, which she won for. Of course, I forgot about In the Bedroom. Camille, mm. who was the real-life WWE wrestler who reportedly lied on the Howard Stern show when he claimed that he was offered the role of Randy in the wrestler but turned it down. Hulk Hogan. That is right. Oh, my goodness. We are all doing so well today, except for you, Damien. Except for you. We're all doing so well. What prompted Bruce Springsteen to write the theme song for the film? He was asked. <laughs> By who? That's correct. I'm going to let you have that one, even though it was pretty pathetic. The story is that Mickey... (laughs) (laughs) The real story is that Mickey Rourke wrote a heartfelt letter to Springsteen and attached a copy of the script. Springsteen Springsteen rang him in the middle of the night while on tour in Europe and said he wasn't sure if he'd be able to squeeze it in but would give it a shot. The song went on to win the Golden Globe for Best Original Song but was surprisingly snubbed at that year's Oscar ceremony when only three songs were nominated as opposed to the usual five. Yes, an absolute mockery of the system. I wonder which song won. Jai Ho. I love that song. Jai Ho. Jai Ho. It's good. From Slumdog Millionaire. Okay, Cameron, this is the last question. It looks like you're probably going to win. Why is the film dedicated to Guns N' Roses lead vocalist Axl Rose? All right, I'm trying to work through this. Okay. Nut it out. Oh, okay. Is it because Mickey Rourke used to come out to... No. Well, look, he's wrong. He's wrong. Is it because Axl Rose died? No, he's not dead. Well, okay, so I know that Slash had a lot to do with the the soundtrack. I know that Mickey Rourke used to come out to his boxing matches with Guns N' Roses on as well. Um, So I'm going to say because of Mickey Rourke's love for Guns N' Roses. Okay, well, you're sort of in the area. What actually happened was Mickey Rock really wanted to use Sweet Child of Mine, mm. but they couldn't afford it, so Axl Rose donated it to the film. And that's why they dedicated it to him. They didn't have the budget oh, to actually yeah. buy the song. No, uh, to tie. We're, we're tied. I'm the... I think that's a half point. No. Maybe we should do another question. Okay. Which Australian actress was originally cast as Stephanie in the film but had to drop out? Oh. Abby Cornish. He wins! <laughs> Sorry, Damien. What I was going to say. So we have, what, we have three for Cameron, two for Damien. Oh. We'd like to thank our special guests, Taja Lane and Yadranka Skoran Kapov, for their expertise and insights. I'd also like to thank our listeners for downloading and listening to our podcast. We hope you'll join us again next month with an episode on Hannah and her sisters, Woody Allen's classic 1986 romantic drama. And until then, we hope you have a lovely life. A lot of these guys have very, very similar stories. They've all, um, you know, they've all worked really, really hard back in the late 80s and early 90s, 350 days a year on the road, and they basically, when their careers ended, their bodies are destroyed and their family lives are all gone. You know, just the other day, Rowdy Roddy Piper came to a screening and um, just emotionally, deeply connected with the film and uh, said, this isn't my story, but it is my story. And that's kind of the, that's, that's the thing. It's the first film that kind of honors these men who uh, were legends, you know, played in front of 50,000 people, but are completely forgotten today. It's